Hi, welcome to Space the Nation. I am Anna Marie Cox, and I am in danger of stroking out. <laughs> and I'm Daniel Dresner, and I may or may not know anything about Jewish space lasers. This is a podcast about science fiction and political science, and we're now out of Expanse episodes, so we're going to get to test everyone's interest in our basic concept. We are going to ring one more episode out of The Expanse with a look back at the whole season. That'll be next week's episode. And after that episode, we're going to do an AMA for patrons on the Saturday after that, March 6th. Because apparently we have some European listeners and we want to make sure the time zone is friendly to all. This seems only appropriate. Uh, if you want to become a patron, by the way, uh, you can go to the Patreon page at patreon.com slash space the nation. Dan, I usually yes. invite you to begin the recap at this point in the podcast. But I want to pause. Yeah. I, mm-hmm. Give you some time to rest up. Carbo load if necessary. Whatever you need to do. Because <laughs> this episode, oh my God. Like... Yes. So, so let's put it this way. You know, to do this, Anna, you are you a, a former grad student in English, I believe, and, and you have the the superpower of being able to watch these episodes basically once to like be able to participate in, in this podcast. I, as a social scientist, have gotten that drummed out of me. So I usually watch these episodes twice to do it. This one, I, I kind of needed to watch maybe a third time or like, you know, like recap little bits of it because, oh, dear God. Um, it was it was intense. A lot happened. And so I think we're going to warn people now. I think we should make an intermission at some point in this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> like be like, all right, everyone, we're, we're taking a break. You go take a break because I think we're going to go over an hour. In fact, I'm pretty positive we're going to go we, over we've an tr- hour. Yeah, we've tried hard to keep it under an hour. We haven't always succeeded, but we are aware that we want to keep it under an hour. This episode, there's a lot going on, and and we really feel like we're going to have to go, you know. So we're just. And with that said, we should probably get started. <laughs> Let's do this. Yes. All right. So we will start with, uh, as as Anna has titled this segment, the Battle of Something Something, which is to say that we start with space in which the Rossi crew is trying to get to Naomi, but. Uh, recognizes that it is going to encounter a bunch of Free Navy ships. Holden quickly recognizes that they are badly outgunned by the Free Navy, which has a heavy frigate, a cruiser, and a couple of belter ships. Bull wants to cut and run. Hold him actually talks him pretty much into a suicide mission as vengeance for Fred with the idea that by doing so, Alex and Bobby should be able to rescue Naomi. Drummers cruise on the Motang, the DeWalt and the Tynan are preparing for battle. Kamina insists that she is fine, despite the fact that this mission seems to be going against her better judgment. Oksana, it would be safe to say, seems pretty fatalistic about how this is going to play out. They are all just about to start into battle. Now, just as the Rossi prepares its run past the the many ships, and Holden gives Bull the very important anti-racist talk uh, about calling Belters skinnies, Drummer makes her move, which is she uh, fires on the Free Navy's heavy frigate. She gets the drop on Corral. The crew on Drummer's ship uh, decides to side with her, killing Corral. Drummer's skiffs also decide to side with her and start firing on the other Free Navy ships. The Rossi takes advantage of this confusion to defeat the Free Navy's uh, sort of MRCN ships and uh, not kill Drummer in the process. A lot happened in, in some ways. That plot summary did not quite do it justice. But again, we're going to go over an hour. We want to keep it under two hours. Um, but, right. but the key thing I would point out here is that 
Anna, Monica did not look super happy about the suicide mission portion of the trip. Would that be safe to say? I guess there are limits to being an embed because I noticed she seemed pretty <laughs> thrilled to be sort of crewish. You know, like uh, she was talking, I need to see the logs and like she's all like business and stuff. But you're right. I guess like there's there's a lot of like being an embed on a campaign that you get to pretend to be on the staff, which is kind of fun. Like you get into some see some meetings and whatnot. But then let's say they're losing. Well, then all of a sudden you are no longer a part of the campaign. Right. She doesn't have that (laughs) option. Yes. (laughs) There is no getting off the Straight Talk Express for Monica. So I think that that, and, that and pro- I was going to just say props to Anna Hopkins for for like she doesn't have to say a lot, but like her she makes it very clear of, oh, dear God, what have I gotten myself into? Mm-hmm. Just pause a second on Bull. I'm sure we'll talk a little bit more about him later. Mm-hmm. But perhaps for now, I will say I think that the tension slash chemistry with him and Holden is great. And mm-hmm. I I wonder if we'll see more of it. Ah, that's an interesting question. Yes. yes. Okay, we'll talk about that later. All right, uh, we move on to uh, the Chetsumoka and the Razorback. Naomi, recognizing that the Razorback is coming to rescue her and not wanting to uh, have the booby trap kill her friends, uh, successfully cripples one of the Chetsumoka's thrusters, putting the ship in a spin, presumably to make it harder to dock. Alex, however, is Alex, and despite Bobby's protestations, decides it's still worth trying to dock with the Chetsumoka. Naomi, realizing what Alex is about to do, puts on her helmet uh, without much air in it one last time and makes a Simone Biles-worthy tumble out of the Chetsumoka into hard vacuum. She then starts using emergency hand signals in a desperate effort to signal the Razorback. Shockingly, uh, Bobby actually sees Naomi in the background of the drive plume of the Chetsumoka, and Alex manages to interpret Naomi's hand signals correctly, which is namely that she doesn't have much air and the ship is rigged to blow and it's a real problem. Bobby gets on her exosuit and manages to rescue her with a tank of oxygen in just the nick of time. It looks like everything ends well, but then we see that Alex has stroked out from all of the high G travels. Rest in peace, Alex Kamal. Anna, there's an elephant in the room when it comes to Alex's death on the show, and it's something that we haven't talked about yet on Space the Nation, um, but I think we kind of have to now, which is clearly part of the reason, and, I, and correct me if I'm wrong, Alex doesn't die at this point in the no. book series, I believe. Yes. No. And so I have to assume that, that part of the reason this happens is because of the allegations that were made against actor Cass Anvar. Um, that the show took very seriously and engaged in independent investigation and found that he had apparently been harassing slash abusive toward a variety of fans at a sort of variety of, of sort of expo events. How do you think they handled his departure from the show? I think they handled kind of both departures pretty well, the departure of the actor and the departure of the character, which are obviously different mm-hmm. things. And yeah. I don't want to get into a Me Too segment. Maybe we can at right. some point. I think there's probably science fiction, you know, texts out there that would lead to a good discussion about that. But for now, I'll but say... But this isn't I, one of them, yeah. This isn't one of them. For now, right. I'll say I think that as a production company, they seem to have handled it very responsibly. You do an investigation. Mm-hmm. You make it all very public, which is why everyone mm-hmm. knows why Alex died. Like, when we were doing mm-hmm. the live tweet of it, like... I guess there were a few people who didn't know and were asking questions, but most of the fans were like, ah, well, I guess that's how they handled it. 
Um, if, by the way, for those of you who don't know why, there is an excellent Slate story that was written uh, after the, the finale to sort of explain what was going on. And we'll include that in the link. And I think that having him stroke out is it's a way of actually being very elegant with the character in a way that you couldn't <laughs> do with the actor. Right. Because that actually is a suitable end for Alex, the character. You know, right. and it's something Holden says later. They all take a risk of choking out whenever they do like high mm. G um, maneuvers. So, and he's been doing it. And also, it it actually fits his backstory. Like, it's kind of cool the way it all works together because he was a pilot, right? And so he's probably yeah. done more high G maneuvers than most people. So, mm-hmm. there you go. I, I I actually had some thoughts about this too. Just very quickly, two of them. The, the first is is that. It's awful to say, but it's tragically ironic that Alex Kamal's character on the show in some ways is so different from Cass Anvar, you know, Cass Anvar's alleged behavior. Indeed, I actually think that the the acting that Cass Anvar did that I liked the best was in last season when he was clearly going sweet on one of the uh, the scientists on Illus, realizes that she has a husband and then immediately like backs off, which is, uh, again, unfortunately, sort of the opposite of what we apparently know about Cass Anvar's behavior. Let's move on to sort of other comments about this section. The episode, um, I wanted to note that Naomi's main acting partner in this uh, episode mm-hmm. or this season has been beeping mm-hmm. increases. That's one of the most lines <laughs> in her scenes. And then a question to ponder, perhaps not to get to the bottom of right now. When we were doing the live tweet, I said that Naomi's leap into the vacuum was a leap of faith and that mm-hmm. although the series engages with religion directly. The book series engages with religion fairly directly. The TV series hasn't, but it engages with faith a lot. Mm -hmm. And I said that in the live tweet and someone was like, oh no, it wasn't an act of faith. She was sacrificing herself for her family. Mm -hmm. And um, I still think, I think that's also an act of faith because it was a high risk thing to do. Like to even have gotten them to not dock even if she had died, there's a very low um, probability of success for that right. stunt. And then when I rewatched it, and I did have to rewatch this episode, <laughs> she says at the very end, thank you. I don't think she's addressing that to Alex and Bobby. I just want to kind of, oh, okay. I don't think so. And maybe it's meaningless. That's interesting. But it seems like she's sort of thanking the universe. I'm not going to posit like a higher power, but more like to me that that suggests that it was, in fact, a leap of faith. Sorry to be so literal about it, too. No, 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 no. I mean, I, it lived for this way. I, I I think Dominique Tipper said in, in the, the time that guy podcast that it was designed to that it was the idea of, of, of a sacrifice to make sure that Alex and Bobby don't risk themselves trying to dock. But I, let me put it this way. I don't think these are mutually exclusive Mm-hmm. possibilities i think the the way to think about it is that to the extent that that naomi has faith this was definitely a leap of it okay. let us move on there's still lots to cover that is correct uh so we now get to the aftermath of naomi's rescue this is the expanse which means that any choice will automatically have consequences both good and bad on the rossi uh holden and naomi finally reunite and they have a a genuinely lovely scene and this might have been my favorite scene in the whole uh episode in which naomi finally plays her in case anything should happen uh recording which holden acknowledges that he had received but had never played because to play it would essentially acknowledge the possibility uh that naomi was dead 
Meanwhile, however, uh, on the Pella, Marco, furious about the Rossi not being destroyed, literally sends a message to Drummer. And that message is the spacing of Surge, the uh, Drummer's uh, faction member who had gone over uh, to work on the Pella. And furthermore, sends the message to the Pella crew, and or sorry, sends the message to uh, Drummer's faction. They all see it. They're all shocked by it. In response, Drummer's faction splits right down the middle. Oksana and Berthold leave on the Motang. Joseph and Michio stay with Kamina. And Anna, I got to admit, of all the different plot arcs that we have seen in season five, the one involving Drummer's faction, and this is hard for me to say since I am such a Kara G fan, but I'm still trying to understand what Oksana was thinking during the latter half of this uh, season. And the only answer I have is that she was just simply jealous of Drummer's past life or resented the fact that Drummer had past ties. Tell me I'm wrong. I I don't know. Yeah, this was the weakest plot arc, I think. And I'm even including the Martian sort of escapades there, which we didn't get a lot of. Mm -hmm. Um, But they made more sense. I mean, this one makes sense (laughs) if you look at it solely through the eyes of Drummer, kind of. Like... Mm -hmm. I understand her arc here. I don't understand anyone else's arc. <laughs> like why? Right. No, drummer see? drummer's arc makes sense. I get yeah. I get the genuine tension she feels. I get, I even get the faction's decision to ally with Marco. That that like yeah. you might not agree with it, but that all makes sense. The problem was is that the and and furthermore, I would add that there's some some acknowledgement and again the expanse does this really well is the choices have consequences and when oksana accuses drummer of saying you did this knowing surge would die there is a great shot of carriage's uh, you know uh, playing drummer's response where she makes it clear yeah she knew that was what was going to happen i will say a couple of things surge was yeah. never going to live yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so Corral. surge was always Corral. a goner much like Coral. um yeah yeah we didn't get a lot of explanation about like why each person chose what Except maybe Oksana mm-hmm. was telegraphed that she wasn't going to stay with Drummer. I still right. don't know what happened when Oksana asked for Drummer's gun. Like, I felt like that never, nothing ever happened with that. Like, I, I don't know. Anyway, and then. Although, to be fair, in retrospect, maybe she was right to ask for, you know, Drummer right, for then her gun. She got her drum back, yeah. But then she got her gun back. So. <laughs> anyway. Wait, no, no, I can't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because, yeah, she got her gun back. And right. I do think that you're correct that she is fundamentally um see i don't want to use resentful or jealous because i think it's a little more subtle than just resentful or jealous i think it plays into no that's fair the family idea which we we're going to talk about at length (laughs) later on in the episode (laughs) oksana has a she feels strongly about this family of choice whereas drummer has never been able to fully let go of her other family of choice which I think mm-hmm. is basically Naomi. Like, I don't know the Rasenate is quite in her circle. Yeah, no, I, I think it's safe to say that, let me put it this way, whatever I think of Drummer, there is no way she would have done what she did for Holden or for Amos or certainly for Alex. She might have done that for Fred, though, I mean, to be fair. So, like, there, it, True. you know, um, yeah. And I, this is something I, I, I kind of want to talk about later, but I guess I'll, you know, mm-hmm. put the bookmark down now, which is... The value of a family member versus the value of, like, millions of unknown people. Mm-hmm. It, it comes up a couple times. One, where Holden says to Bull two things. He killed Fred. He started a war. As though those two things were the same, like, same emotional, <laughs> moral value. 
And then I think you sort of allude to this, which is Kamina was probably going to turn on Marco even if he hadn't started a war. Like mm-hmm. the death of millions, billions on Earth probably didn't matter to her as much as Naomi. I mean, I think it plays a factor in like underscoring like yeah. what a psychopath Marco is. Yeah. But she was making a choice based on family, not on lots and lots of unknown people. Oh, clearly. No, I mean, remember, they make the choice to join Marco post-apocalypse. So, I mean, clearly, I mean, even though she's, it shows that she wasn't thrilled with it, but clearly she was willing to do that. But but Naomi is clearly a... a, Oh, I think when they joined with Marco, I think Drummer was already, like, planning some kind of, not escape, but I, I don't think Drummer's heart was ever in... Joining no drummers. No drummers. Drummer was making a rational calculation, and yeah. that I think that would be the way to put it. But let me put it this way: I th- the, you're right. I think Drummer, in her mind, always had a red line that she was never going to cross when it came to Marco. And Naomi was clearly like or targeting the Rossi or or threatening uh, Naomi was clearly past that red line. Yeah. One thing pointed out by one of uh, the fellow tweeters, mm-hmm. which is that. Most of the Free Navy ships are kind of badly painted over. You can still see the MCRN, like, logos underneath. But the Pella is Mm -hmm. expertly painted. The Pella... (laughs) Oh, I didn't notice that. That's interesting. Okay. The Pella looks sharp. And it's just another example of Marco (laughs) not engaging in kind of um, uh, the Belter aesthetic. Which I like. I think that the badly painted, quote unquote, badly painted MCRN ships are actually intentionally supposed to show the MCRN logo because it's like we mm. took this. They want right, people to exactly. see that ship and know that oh yeah, this used to belong to Mars and now it belongs mm-hmm. to us. So right, it anyway. adds an intimidation factor. Yeah, no, yeah. no denying. One last thing. Yes. I swear to God, the exchange between Philip and Marco where Marco says, you have no feelings on it. And he says, why should I? And Philip says, why should I? And wow, that's just horrible. It just, it made me, it made me cringe <laughs> and sad because I, I think it's for real. Like, I mean, I think if not for real, I think Philip does have feelings that I think he's really trying to be like his dad. I think he's yes, sincerely think trying statement. to repress those feelings. It's not like I'm going to act like this so he doesn't yell at me in front of everybody again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's a sincere attempt to be more like Marco. Yes, which it, which is like the first time Marco offers him positive reinforcement, and I can't yeah. remember how long. That's, he's which so, he's such an abuser. He really is. Like it's it's <laughs> he is. I mean, and, and, and it would not shock me. I mean, people who've been in abusive relationships, I think, see it. You know, he's mm-hmm. he's a gaslighter. Um, mm-hmm. He does this emotional yo-yo thing where like. He pretends to give you praise. I guess it's negging, you know, in the parlance. Like, he pretends to give you praise and that yanks it right back. Like, it's real, like, like higher level emotional abuse. <laughs> yes. And again, props to Keon Alexander. As I, I think I tweeted mm-hmm. when we were doing the live tweet of the episode, he he just excels at playing a charismatic dick. And that is not. And I mean that in, the, in a complimentary way. I mean, like I, Keon, in all the other interviews I've seen him with, seems like a genuinely decent human being. So that so props to him for doing that. Right. Um, Let us continue our tour. Yes, we now move to Luna. 
um, where Avasarala has been sworn in uh, and immediately communicates a public message to Belters, signaling that she does not view all of them as the enemy. As she's doing that, uh, Amos and Eric have also made it to Luna and uh, just a little putting a period on on the last episode, we find out that Hutch uh, is alive, which is good for her. Eric invites Amos to join him in criming on a colony ship. Well, not criming, but like doing stuff in a colony ship uh, in one of the other worlds. Amos immediately declines. And gosh, he seems pretty well adjusted about that. Um, Literally, he's the most well adjusted in that scene, I think, than in, in the entire season. The Rossi, uh, with the entire gang, plus Bobby, docks on Luna. Amos sweet-talks Holden uh, into accepting Clarissa as a new crew member, uh, which leads to a darling line reading by Nadine Nicole, uh, her only line in the entire episode. Then everyone gathers in the Luna bar, and Avasarala declares that their multicultural ensemble is what scares Marco the most. Anna, I, I did like how this scene was set up as the end of the season, because in terms of time, this episode was about 10 minutes longer, I think, than the standard Expanse episode this season. And so, like, if you were just sort of used to rhythms, you would think, oh, okay, so this is how it's going to wrap up. This is how things are setting up for the future conflict. Of course, another shoe is about to drop, and we will get to that uh, in the next act. I guess my question is, do you think this cosmopolitan versus more belter-than-thou dynamic uh, will be the defining one for next season? I think it could. I mean, it's definitely a theme in mm-hmm. the books throughout, really, because the, mm-hmm. the belter extremism versus belter identity, I would say, is something that the books take pretty serious, seriously throughout. I don't know how much it's going to show in this TV series, in part because they still have a lot of shit to like hand. I mean, yeah, they packed a lot. This episode actually... I thought it was one of the best of the season, if not the best of the season. But And they gave me kind of hope or the expectation that they might be able to handle all the different things that are going to happen in the books, right? Like they're not going to pare much down. So I think mm-hmm. that they, they, they will do that. But there's also a whole nother, you know, galaxy to visit, right? And there's a whole plot line there, too. There's, like, the plot line outside the rings, and then there's the plot line kind of inside the rings. There's a proto-molecule. There's the the battle between the belters and everyone else. And then there's the sort of intra-belter stuff going on as well. I guess I listed every plot line there could be. Sorry. (laughs) Um, I did want to say that that speech from Abbasarala was very George W. Bush. (laughs) They hate us for our freedoms was like mm. the first thing I thought of when, when she was talking, which is a, it's a good line, you know, yeah. it's a, it's a really good line that. And, and I would, add, I would add something else, which is to be fair, the one thing that both Marco and Holden and Avasarala, they all agree on is that the Rossi is actually a powerful symbol. And that's why Marco wanted to destroy it. And that's also why, and Holden recognized that Naomi recognizes that everyone recognizes that. And what's interesting is that because they, because the Rossi survives and because the crew of the Rossi is what it is, that none that still represents a pretty powerful symbol, which indicates that Marco fears it. Yes, and I think that's a little bit interesting because I think that the expanse, for the most part, doesn't really play around with symbols so much. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. it's a pretty literal <laughs> kind of show. Like, I'm, I'm being serious. Right. Like, I feel like, and I yeah, like yeah. that about it. Like, and when they engage with themes that have echoes to you know our reality, I think that they don't do it in a nudge, nudge, wink, wink way. It's just straightforwardly part of the plot. And that kind of leaves it to us to find the parallels like Marco's 
or sorry, like Marco being a pathological narcissist, for instance. <laughs> the last thing I w- wanted to say about that scene was Amos gets a hug. <laughs> and Amos being touched is like a definite, like, you want to mark those the way that Naomi marked her trips out into the <laughs> exoskeleton <laughs> of the ships. Like, right. there's maybe only so much room for them in the world, but he seemed to accept it pretty gracefully. I was actually very touching the way, I mean, like, yeah. you know, and and I think it was also, frankly, good for the, the viewer, because let's face it, this is the first time we've seen Dominic Tipper and Wes Chatham in the same scene in this season. And so, yes, it was actually meaningful to see them all together. Yeah. Moving on. Moving on to the right. actual last segment of the show. Yeah, so just when you think the show is ending, finally, the shoe that I have been waiting for the entire season drops, which is, so with an assist from Bobby, uh, Monica realizes that uh, the Zemea, which had been blown up previously, had successfully transferred the protomolecule via a missile. Avasarala uh, grabs Holden and discreetly le- uh, takes him out uh, of the bar for a security council meeting, where they see that Marco and the Martians have finally dropped this shoe. The Free Navy destroys the ships guarding the ring, uh, both the UN ships and the Martian ships, with the help of, of stealth tech micrometeorites, as well as apparently fire from Medina Station, which one presumes now is controlled by the Free Navy. Marco, uh, as a result... Marco now controls the ring, um, and a series of Martian ships go through the ring. At that point, we see a communication between Marco and Admiral Sovetier. Their apparent deal was that the Martians uh, received the protomolecule and safe passage through the ring to a planet called Laconia, where the kidnapped Martian scientist Cortazar is. Uh, it's clear that the arrangement is a live and let live agreement where Marco has hegemony in this solar system and uh, Sovetier, and also a reference to an Admiral Duarte, who I don't think we've seen before, just to be clear, have hegemony uh, in their system. And then as it it literally ends with the Martian ship passing through the ring, presumably Laconia. And Anna, I, I just want some clarity on that last scene because in that last scene, I'm pretty sure the Martians didn't make it through the ring gate. At least that's what it seemed to me. Um, I kind of thought the aliens who defeated the creators, of the protomolecule just dusted the Martians. Am I wrong? No, that's, that's exactly what happened. There's a little okay. more... Obviously, there's more explication in the books, and I don't think I'm spoiling anything. It's so funny. Like this podcast could be, I don't could be called, I don't think I'm spoiling anything. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, um, there's some entity that exists right. in the space between one ring and the other ring. Like it appears mm-hmm. as though the rings are just like a two-dimensional thing, right? Like just you, portals, right? A yeah. piece of paper that you you fly through one end, you come out of the other. There is some sort of space. There's a depth to the rings as well, you know, as whatever diameter they are. So that is interesting and mm-hmm. obvious another plot line. I just realized there's yet another plot line, which is what the fuck is going on in Medina Station, right? Yes. Um, I'm super excited for this plot. I love the Laconia plot because there's a dog involved. Okay. You Probably, I don't think they're going to cut the dog character. I know like having animals like in productions is kind of expensive from what I'm told. They, they work cheap, but you know, you got to mm-hmm. like 
have all the you different have to things that adhere to all these kinds of guidelines. Yes, yes. Right, right. But I think um, you and Anna and I are. You, it would be safe to say that we are both people that believe that all shows can be improved by the addition of dogs. Yes. So I'm looking forward to a dog. I'm looking forward to also. There's some like really kind of classic sci-fi tropes that are going to get played out here, having to do with experiments Ooh, with alien shit. Ah, okay. Right. Yeah. Yes. I wanted to say what is it? Oh, in the books, they call that when the when the ships disappear. It's a thing that happens every once in a while. I've, they probably touched on it before. They call it going mm. Dutchman, which is kind of a nice nod <laughs> to very ancient <laughs> seafaring slang. Yes. Now that we've gotten the dog and the cool slang out of the way, I will actually comment on the plot somewhat. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> when Marco does his little self-serious... I now grant you access to Laconia for you and your heirs. <laughs> I feel like the Martians were probably like, uh, yeah, right. You know, like, uh-huh. Yeah, that was yours to give us, sure. Like, they're they're going along with his self-importance, but you can kind of feel the, like, whatever, asshole, you know? <laughs> like, oh, the, no, no, there's a lovely... Blow your blow your, you know, ass out of the water. Oh, no, I, I totally agree. There's a moment just when Sovater stops the communication with Marco where you see his face and it's look, it really it looks like he's just swallowed the most bitter medicine imaginable. Um, and it was clear that like even talking to Marco was distasteful to him. So, yeah, I agree with you on that. And I think it it has a plot uh, importance because what is going on in Laconia might make those people much more powerful than the Free Navy. That is what. I believe the Laconians are thinking is going to happen. So the idea that Marco would like, oh yeah, it's, I give you the this planet because it is mine to give you. No. <laughs> okay. All right. Now, Dan. Anna. Is there IR in this episode? There is indeed some IR in this episode. Not as much as in others, but, but some. Uh, the most obvious... IR in this episode is the what I'm now calling the Marco and the Martians Alliance, because that or it's a band, one of the two. But you, but you are seeing, if nothing else, the sort of the beginning of two grand coalitions, as it were, whereas there were a lot of different players, you know, in previous seasons. It now seems pretty clear that, like, essentially there is an ideological conflict brewing between what we would call pure nationalists. And here, you know, this is Marco... Uh, for the belt, the sort of more belter than thou uh, uh, crew. And then clearly a faction of Martians where they even say at the very end of the episode, we have to be purer now than we were on Mars. So, you know, it's those two groups, which probably, by the way, despise each other. There's a lot of Star Trek VI undiscovered country part of this, you know, in that it's like unlikely allies, you know, bonding. And then on the other side are the Cosmopolitans, which are presumably Avasarala, who you would not have necessarily thought of as a Cosmopolitan in beginning of season one but nonetheless has has clearly evolved and indeed even naomi says that in the the uh, in the episode you know the rossi crew presumably whatever remnants of the belt that are opa and not free navy will join them and maybe the martians this is where like i, I again like there were elements of this where like i want to know what the hell was going on on medina station as you say and i kind of want to know what was going on on mars during all of this uh, so that that's for the first time you're seeing coherent ideological alliances and ideology can be one way in which you actually have, uh, you know, international alliances. And here's a, a place to maybe draw some parallels to this place in time. 
I suspect that alliances between pure nationalists don't necessarily last very long. That seems it, pretty unsteady. The, the, yeah, the analogy I would make is the Molotov-Von-Ribbentrop Pact. Um, that's the <laughs> most course. obvious Everyone one. knows the Molotov-Von-Ribbentrop okay, yeah, well, Pact. <laughs> the the, the Molotov-Von-Ribbentrop Pact is the alliance between Stalin and Hitler, which in some oh, ways actually jumpstarts... <laughs> It jumpstarts World War II because everyone thinks of the the Soviet the, the Soviets as being part of the Allies during World War II. But during the first couple of years, when Hitler invades Poland from uh, the west, everyone you know some historians might forget, or some, not some lay people might forget. In the end, Stalin invades Poland from the east, and so it was believed that by uh, forming that alliance, they would it would allow Hitler to focus most of his fury on uh, the Western powers. Stalin agreed to this thinking that essentially Hitler and the rest of the West would fight each other into oblivion and then he would, you know, be the sole remaining power. And he was therefore shocked, shocked somewhat, and I mean this seriously, that Hitler then decided to launch Operation Barbarossa and invade the Soviet Union. Yes, it would be safe to say that those kinds of alliances don't always last. But there's mm-hmm. also an argument about the fragility of cosmopolitan alliances. I think this at least correct. in domestic politics, because the stuff that I've read about like why we're so polarized, I mean, Ezra Klein's book of that name, mm-hmm. why we're so polarized. And, and other political scientists, I believe, have said this as well, which is that when you have one party that is willing to accept different kinds of people into it, like the Democrats became the home for those seeking liberation and equality, right? Mm-hmm. Like, um, you know, uh, people of color. Women, anyone who wasn't conservative, basically. I mean, it's almost by a default, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Becomes that party becomes really diverse, which is great, yeah. yay! But diversity means you have different values and different priorities, and so you end up with the Democrats' classic, you know, circular firing squad and yanking mm-hmm. defeat out of the jaws of victory because there's so many different parties to please. Whereas, if you're the Republican Party, especially now. Mm-hmm. You are ideologically, like, solid. You have purged the party of anyone that might disagree. I think that's pretty clear now, right? Like, there are no moderate Republicans left. I mean, they might call themselves moderate Republicans, but it it has become the party of Trump. I don't know if that makes it more powerful, but... Here's the way I would put it. So I would say two things on this. First, we're in a world where Liz Cheney is now considered a moderate in the Republican Party. And anyone familiar with Liz Cheney's background should be surprised, let's say, to hear the word moderate used along with Liz Cheney, which, by the way, is not a criticism of Liz Cheney. It's just that, you know, she would she would say she's not a moderate, I think. Right, exactly. Unless we're uh, only we're defining moderates. What's happened is the only way we define moderate now is are you a Trump supporter? Exactly. Which is a shitty way to define moderate. But there you go. (laughs) Um, But to to. Actually, to abstract away from from American politics, the thing that this reminded me of, and I admit this is just because I I literally just taught history of the Peloponnesian War uh, in my class, is that as the Peloponnesian War evolves, and this is a contest between Athens and Sparta, and by the way, just to drop this, another way to call Sparta is Laconia. Yes. I did actually know that. (laughs) Okay. As the war between Athens and Sparta continues, and it, it goes for three decades, Athens is viewed as a democracy. Sparta is viewed as more of an oligarchy. What winds up happening across all of the Greek city-states is that literally 
all the Greek city-states almost have their own little mini-civil wars because essentially the oligarchs in each of these civil states or uh, city-states start siding with the Spartans and the larger citizenry decides they want to side with the Athenians. And so you have civil war after civil war. Um, and this is, Thucydides represents this most in, in the revolt in Corsaria, which is, is just a really vivid depiction. And oh, woe behold the expanse if that's what the ideological conflict looks like in season six. I mean, I think one thing, I'll, the point I'll make about the here and now uh, mm-hmm. similarities or parallels is that I think that there is a difference in wartime with those two kinds of yeah. uh, opponents. If you have a, a cosmological, cosmological, if you have a cosmopolitan, <laughs> like diverse uh, side, and then you have the more yeah. um, nationalistic side, if you're at war, I think mm-hmm. that those things might be kind of even out. Like, I'm not sure that one side has a specific, or I would say both sides have advantages. Yeah. Maybe I'm wrong. But I think in governing, Mm -hmm. the cosmopolitan side has a harder time. Well. Like, they may produce a better government. (laughs) Yeah, this is But they're going to have trouble getting shit done. It's. So it's a little more complicated than that, I'm going to say, because the so on on the one hand, you're absolutely correct that that cosmopolitan democracies usually are slower in getting their act together. They are going to make mistakes. They're designed to not act quickly because the whole principle of checks and balances and legitimacy. So that's all valid. That said, and this is where I'm also like adding the democratic autocratic distinction because that matters, too. Purely nationalist, like populist nationalist autocracies have their problems as well. And the biggest problem is, is that if you are in one of those regimes, if the leader is not a Peter the Great, but is rather, you know, Tsar Nicholas II or someone who's incompetent, Kaiser Wilhelm II actually comes to mind, uh, you're in deep, deep trouble because generally speaking, autocrats who are incompetent, it people don't want to necessarily question them because, among other things, if you do so and you fail, you are killed, usually. The difference between democracies and autocracies is commonly perceived as that democracies, if they screw up, can course correct, whereas autocracies, if they do the same thing, it takes longer for them to course correct because, among other things, the legitimacy of the autocrat often rests on the idea of their you know, perceived omniscience and, and so forth. And so to admit error is difficult. And I should say, when I say diverse democracies have a harder time governing, I, I, that's preferable. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yes. Like, I but would no, you're rather right, but it's live not easy. It's in not that easy. society. Yeah. But yeah. it is, I think, important for us in this particular time and moment yes. on the cusp of a new administration to point out that when you have a lot of different kinds of people wanting a lot of different kinds of things, you're going to get a lot of fights in mm-hmm. the party. And yeah, it's going to be messy. Yeah, that can be seen as a strength. And I want to like my fellow like Bernie brethren, <laughs> I would like us to remember this as we go forward and remember, oh, my God, Bernie Sanders is the head of the you know, budget committee. Oh, my God. Like, that's just like, did you think ever in your lifetime that that would happen, Dan? I mean, <sighs> No, I can't say I did, but on the other yeah, hand, I didn't no, uh, dwell on it that much. I, I couldn't <laughs> give it this. Well, I mean, well, mostly I have to... much, but like, but he, 
it is. I have this image of him be- chairing the but. I have. I confess, this is the the sort of memeification of of society. I have this image of him chairing the budget committee, wearing those mittens, and like you know, <laughs> sitting the way he did at the inauguration. So that's a whole separate thing. Anyway, that's my that's my plea for people on the you know further edge of the left to have some patience with the Biden administration because so there, it's going to be tough. Yeah, there's a weird so place to put other- it in a podcast in this podcast, but hey. <laughs> <laughs> There are two other IR elements that I think are worth noting, or at least one which is a foreign policy thing, which is, damn, Mars needed a non-Luger program. Um, and and you might be asking, I what is a non-Luger program? Is. Yes. Uh, but for those of you what? who don't know, the non- It's the nuclear safety thing? Basically, yeah. Non-Luger was a program yeah. that was conceived in the immediate aftermath of the Cold War, recognizing that- there were a lot of Soviet scientists and Soviet nuclear material just lying around. And as the Russian budget was being slashed, those people... Nuclear safety thing. I was right about it. <laughs> yes. As they, they you know, the, the question was, would they go rogue? And so one of the more successful programs was the provision of a lot of assistance to basically, for lack of a word of putting it, buy off these scientists to make sure that they did not choose to go work for Iraq or Pakistan or North Korea or what have you. This was been recognized as, as one of the genuine concrete foreign policy successes of the post-Cold War era. And it was striking, you know, on the Mars plot thinking, man, I wish someone had done that for Mars. Although it's not clear it would have worked because clearly the faction that winds up breaking off and going to Laconia seems more holier than that. Yeah, I don't know who would have instituted that program. It should have been the Martian government is the, the oh, okay. answer. And, which is in some ways the, the one of the issues that's going on here is we only see one side of the Mars story and I would have liked to have seen what was going on in, let's say, the Martian governments, you know, just to know. And and this is unfair to The Expanse because there's a lot of moving parts going on this season, and I recognize that, but still it would have been good to know. The last thing I will say in terms of the IR, which is unusual, I don't know how to put this, is I'm trying to figure out exactly what the status of the Rossi crew is in terms of this coalition, and there's like a very brief exchange in the Luna Lounge where they say that they're an independent ship. They're not part of, you know, Earth, but nonetheless, they're clearly fighting on the side of Earth. And I kind of kept thinking that it was like, oh, so you're the free French, basically. (laughs) (laughs) I think that... I, yeah, I thought I thought about that dialogue. I, I mean, it's so in your face, you know, mm-hmm. um, statement of purpose. And yet on the face of it, not true. <laughs> like, <laughs> yes, exactly. They definitely pick sides. They tend yeah. to pick the same side most mm-hmm. of the time, I guess. Although you could say they pick the Belter side ones. They pick the Earth side now. But... Yeah. Even now, I would say that they're, you know, they're anti-Martian, not anti-Martian. They're, yeah, I guess, I guess you could, they're anti-Laconian to be sure. I say, don't I don't tell Bobby that. that. Bobby will kick your ass if you say that. Right. <laughs> I believe they were anti-Free Navy. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a better way of putting it. Yes. So it's an odd, again, it's sort of an odd in your face right. statement to Not make. to mention the fact that like. The Rossi, the legal status of the Rossi is in no small part created by Earth, created by Avasarala, um, which is that they're, they're, it's defined as a, as a salvage. So that's how they actually managed to own the ship. So I just thought that was, I, I agree with you that in some ways there's a little bit of denial when Holden says that. And it's pretty clear where they belong. But, you know, whatever you need to tell yourself to sleep at night and fight the Free Navy. And 
I have to think it comes into play in some level moving forward, but who knows how that might be. We will see. Let us stick with this episode as much as we can and go into themes and quotes. We're going to do something special this episode. All the quotes together, because Dan and I have decided we saw basically the same theme, the er theme of The Expanse, which is the way that I would phrase it is family of origin versus family of choice. Dan, would you like to say? And I would say I would. Yes, my spin was it's about the politics of families. All right. I don't look away from what I do. Camila. Captain now. Camila later. We have nothing to stay together for. It's good to be seen. He murdered Fred. He started a war. The people come into our lives and they go out. Families change. That Laconia is yours and your heirs from this time forward. Is that bracelet dress coat, Lieutenant? Anna, why don't you go first with your theme? Right. So I see this as a very dominant theme in the show and in the books. And sometimes it's almost they, they put little you know bells and whistles on, on it and like wave their hands and go, so see, see this theme, see. Um, and to me, that that is the family of choice versus the family of origin. And, or you could call it nature versus nurture, but I think there's much more um, agency involved. Mm-hmm. than just nature or nurture and yeah. it's so present in this episode there's captain now Kamina later which is a, a very <laughs> specific kind of statement of purpose so one of the things is the equivalence of one family member to the millions and millions of other people which happens a few times right uh he mm-hmm. murdered fred he started war as being sort of morally equivalent and then there's like some really obvious ones families change and it can be hard and sad but we bear it and then actually my favorite little philip on this is when martian matahari makes the choice to take off her bracelet Yes. And give it to the admiral Sovater, rather than right. Sovater, rather than, you know, break dress code. Mm-hmm. It is, I believe that you can say the military can be a family of choice, you know. And and Absolutely. also I, I want to point out that there's sort of some tension there in an interesting way. The show, I think, recognizes, you know, that maybe you never truly separate Alex's family, they very specifically say that he is going to, you know, be taken care of. His funeral arrangements are going to be taken care of by his ex-wife, and he's mm-hmm. going to get full Martian military, military honors. honors. Right. My least favorite <laughs> touch on this theme is the throwaway fan service line that Holden has when uh, Naomi asks about his parents, and he's like, oh, yeah, Avasarala picked him up, no problem. Okay, That so- seems a little convenient, but... It is nice, but it is it is a reminder that there is blood family out there, I guess. So I'd say a few things. The first is you're absolutely right that the only way to read this season is that generally speaking, your chosen family matters more than you know, that that most of the main characters' blood family don't do terribly well, right? I mean, Avasarala loses her husband. Alex goes back to try to pair, you know, and, and literally Holden's family is an afterthought. Like it is a literal right. afterthought in the scene, in the episode. Alex goes back to Mars to try to patch things up, and it's clear that that can't be patched up. Naomi tries to essentially create a bond with Philip, and everyone, I think, we can now recognize that was a failure. There's no other way to to, to look at it, and so yes, in some ways, this is about. Uh, 
constructed family. Oh, but and I, Amos's whole journey is like the most obvious right. one. It, it probably should have mentioned that first. Yeah. It's he's the most explicit about it, mm-hmm. and it's the biggest shift. Well, you could say that Philip Philip has very dramatic choices, but he doesn't really make a shift. I think Amos's right, character yeah. is the one that we follow through a def, through a choice, a conscious choice to join a different family. Yeah. I think you're right, but I would add two caveats to this and this is important. The first is is that just because you choose your family, that does not mean that politics goes away. There is a politics of families as anyone who has ever had to host a Thanksgiving meal can attest to. And so we see that at play throughout this you know, throughout this episode, most obviously in terms of Drummer's faction and the fact that it splits apart in the end, but also in the very amusing scene where Amos has to sort of sweet talk Holden into accepting Clarissa Peaches as part of their crew. And, you know, that's that that matters. And the other thing I would say is that just because families are chosen doesn't mean that you just snap your fingers and that's that. Both in international relations and in terms of interpersonal relationships, social construction takes time. It is not easy to do necessarily that once you do it, the bonds can be very durable. But that doesn't mean that it's very easy to do. And in some ways, this goes back to that debate that uh, Pastor and Avasarala had, where Pastor says that, you know, the kind of diplomacy of, of coaxing the belt onto our side takes time. He was right about that, to be fair. That doesn't mean he was right in terms of his policy, but he is right to make that point. And so... Family is something that you can choose, but that doesn't mean that the choice is always easy or effortless. Yeah, I think that in some ways, like, that is the texture of the theme, if that makes sense. Um, And what I would add... It it is not simply that, like, families of choice are good, families of origin are are bad, or, like, we Mm -hmm. think one is better than the other, and we think one is easier than the other. I think that what the show does really well is consistently interrogate this family of choice idea like can you can you maintain it is it durable um what about the ties that you have to other people and other places and And we never we never fully i mean the, the the quote from amos we never really leave anything behind yeah you know like into your family of choice you take all of the emotional baggage that you had in your family of origin right. you know as any marriage can attest yes that's so. fair enough um <laughs> and uh in some ways this is why drummer's faction even though i was not happy with that plot i was, it was the least satisfying it was also in some ways pointing out there are ways that families break up just as much as families mm-hmm. are formed in terms of avasarala saving holden's parents the only thing i would say on that I, you're right that in some ways it was just sort of a a quick sentence throw off to deal with and i know you didn't like that i kind of liked it a little bit just because it demonstrates that avasarala is not a dumb politician which is this is just pure patronage politics right if you're avasarala you need the rossi on your side precisely for the symbolic power that the rossi has not to mention that it's a tough little ship as bobby puts it and how do you ensure it's patronage you take care of the crew and you take care of their their family so i think rescuing holden's parents in that sense was a smart move i'll grant you it might not have been the most noble thing that's funny because i think you're correct and it's a much more generous and also like how do we put it like in canon read uh Mm -hmm. my read was that it's fan service and your read was it's holden service Yes, it's holding service. That's the way I would put it. Yes. And if I look at it that way, it's actually much easier to take. Oh, good. You know, texts are so weird, right? They can be both read 
just as a self-contained thing or as I prefer (laughs) (laughs) constantly in dialogue with the reader and the world around it yes I did go to graduate school (laughs) but let us leave both graduate school and the various plot lines of heavy analysis behind and enter the debris field these are where we have our little afterthoughts and stray points that we may not have made earlier Dan would you like to go first Okay, so just a few uh, notes. First of all, I, I do want to uh, do a shout out for uh, the actress Olenuke Delie, and I apologize if I'm mispronouncing that, but she played Karal. She's obviously no more after this episode. And can I just say she did a great job with this character because, God, I wanted to punch her every time I saw her. And I mean that like in the sense of this was a good, believable villain, you know, fully consistent and just well done. And also carried respect and honor. Like you never felt like she was at all compromising and there was a dignity to her that really gave that character as small part as it was some real weight. To to make a real world analogy as a Red Sox fan, I felt about Corral the same way I feel about Mariano Rivera. And so, you know, that's high praise. I would say that uh, it was very nice. This is just a small point, but it was awfully nice after Naomi's entire season of basically just wearing jumpsuits to see her in some really sweet looking duds at that Luna uh, lounge party where like she's actually dressed up for the only time in the entire season. Uh, Similarly, you see Bobby in what looks like, I believe, an Earth uniform. Also, just that was pleasant to see and in some ways made you think that that would actually be the final scene in the episode. Yes, I think Naomi, to be very uh, specific, I think she wore one jumpsuit the entire <laughs> season. I think she literally did not change clothes. That Then that one jumpsuit, boy, I mean, I it would cut off work. a piece of it myself. Like, you know, lucky jumpsuit. Carry yes. it with you always. <laughs> um, and sorry, the only other question I had, which was, it was, I just couldn't quite understand it, was the, the sort of, the scene between Amos and Eric. Amos wants to, you know, toast their departure with a drink and of course spills the bottle and the bottle you know crashes very very slowly to the ground on luna because they're up on the fifth floor and I, I had two thoughts first i wasn't sure what the symbolism was on that and i want to defer to my grad student uh colleague on that and also i kept thinking you know that seems really unsafe and and that's a big problem like floating glass in in luna and i like i hope they don't like there should be more shatterproof glass in in luna is all i'm saying I think it was an awkward scene. I know when we did our tweet along, like some people thought it was funny. I did not. I thought mm-hmm. it was um, the rare, very awkward scene. In fact, yeah. that I feel like that scene would have been much better had they not had a bottle involved at all. Or they right. or they an intentional, like throwing it away, perhaps, like mm-hmm. into space would have been a cool way to handle it. Because I do think that... What it represented was Amos ending that relationship or in- breaking right, exactly. that tie as far yes. as he can, right? We, yeah. we always take yeah. everything with us. Oh, and I do think it is a specific bottle. It's a bottle from Eric's office. That right, really it was cool... the tequila. Was it the tequila? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I think so. So, I mean, there's some meaning there. Hmm. I mean, whatever you want to make of that. Mm-hmm. The only thing I have left to talk about that I will not save for the season wrap up is closer viewers than you and I (laughs) notice changes in the opening and closing credits, Mm -hmm. which look forward to the next season. 
And I want to thank all those people. It's funny, like, I feel slightly guilty sometimes hosting this podcast because I think you and I do close reads of themes and mm-hmm. characters and meaning of politics and parallels to our earth and whatnot. I have never really been able to be the kind of science fiction fangirl that notices all the callbacks. Like, yeah. I wish I was. <laughs> and usually the that kind of people that host podcasts about a show, I think, do notice that stuff. So I just want to thank uh, everyone, including the patrons, that point that out when we miss it. Yes. Uh, much obliged. And it, again, I, my guilty confession is that when I'm watching this sometimes, you know, I, I have not necessarily a ton of time. And so I often fast forward through the opening credits in particular because it's saving me like a couple minutes. And this time I didn't. And I was like, whoa, okay, whoa, that changed. Yes, that was worth noting. So neither of us stroked out. Yay! (laughs) And I want to invite people to please not just give us uh, your insight on callbacks and inside jokes and the meaning of little symbols and signs, um, but also your thoughts on the season as a whole would be welcome because we're going to want to bounce those ideas off of each other, maybe, Mm -hmm. and also uh, start thinking about them for our AMA. You can give us those thoughts either on the Patreon page or you can tweet at us at underscore space the nation. The Patreon page might be better because you can write longer and it's all in one place. That's easier <laughs> for us. <laughs> mm-hmm. And after which we will be starting, as as Anna said, uh, on some non-expanse materials. Uh, our short-term plans include a discussion of Ender's Game by Orson Scott Card, uh, perhaps in some ways the anti-expanse but nonetheless still very good uh, science fiction novel. We are also going to focus on one of the Ur texts that in some ways informs The Expanse, which is the movie Alien. And beyond that, we're going to talk about Ursula K. Le Guin. Uh, we are guaranteeing a guest spot from John Scalzi at some point. But Anna, until then... Keep this channel open for more. <laughs> <laughs>